Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, well, good morning, morning, everyone. It's good to see you. (laughs) It's good good to be together. I was saying to somebody... I'm sure glad I have this teaching responsibility. Because I might not study as hard as I do from the book of Job. It's a very it's the most difficult study I've ever, ever done. That's that's good for us, but it is it is the word of God and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I, I think as we've been seeing, part of the lesson is just the process of doing it. And the the difficulty sometimes of of working through it. So Let's pray and we'll dive in. Our Father, we lift our hearts. We thank you for just the fact that we're here together today and you have arranged in your kind providence for this body to meet. And you have formed this body by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for your word that you've given to us, that you've left it for us in a in a form that we can see and by your spirit can, can begin to understand it. So we ask that now today that you administer to us by your spirit and we pray that we would see uh, glimpses and clarity of our Lord Jesus Christ and for our hope is in him. And we pray in his name. Amen. <coughs> so we are in uh, Job chapter 11. Oh, let's see, this is stay, March 3rd, and this is the 8th lesson in the book of Job. We're going to start cover Job 11, 12, 13, and 14, and my name is Dan Trip. So, this is the last of the, this is the last speech, well, this is the last part of the first cycle of speeches. There's three cycles of speeches. Each one of Job's three friends make a speech, and Job responds to each one of those three. And so we've had uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and now we have Zophar, and the responses from, from uh, Job to each one. Uh, let's see. Uh, so there's two more cycles. So there's uh, cycle number two has all three of the friends, plus Job's response to each one. Cycle number three is a little different. It just has the first two, Eliphaz and Bildad, but so far it doesn't show up the last time. We don't know what happened to, uh, to him. Uh, so he won't be there. So far is a very reasonable theologian. He holds to this retributive justice if, if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. And, uh, uh, he's, very, he's very clear about that, as all the other the other uh, two are also. I was thinking about these three friends and realized I think it's really true that when somebody around us, maybe that we're related to or associated with in some way, maybe in the local church, when somebody in our sphere is going through a trial or a testing, I think it's true that we automatically are in a test ourselves. Maybe for two reasons, probably more than two reasons, but two I thought about. One is just because, particularly in the local church, 
if somebody's going through a trial or a test, then by definition, by the unity of the body, then we are too. And that's what uh, Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 26, I think. He says, when one member suffers, every member, every member suffers. So there's an organic unity here. Not, and we don't, I don't often think of that way. Uh, remember the, I think I mentioned before, it's helpful to me that uh, if my big toe hurts, I could say my big toe has a pain, but it's better for me to say I have a pain in my big toes, because if you've ever stumped your toe at night, your whole body gets involved with that. <laughs> and knows about it. Uh, did I tell you about that? The, a memo from my toe? I forget what I've told people. I can't find this. It was before before uh, the internet. But I saw this, uh, this little page and it was a memo from my toe. And, and so his big toe was writing this guy a letter. And he, he said, I've been your big toe for 40 years. I've supported you and done all kinds of things for you. And you never give me any credit for anything. But I got your attention last night when you stuck me on the, on the, uh, on the bed post. And, and he said, it was amazing because your whole body came to my rescue, you know, and uh, your mouth, your everything. So uh, he said, just remember how important I am down here. Or I'll get your attention again. <laughs> I've been over my tongue. Um, so I think that's one reason, one way that, that uh, that when, when somebody in the body has a trial or, or, or in distress, then we need to recognize the whole body does too. It's not, it's not just the big toe we have. And that's so important, I think, as God's people. The other way I think we, we ran a test is kind of like these, these three guys. They're engaging with him and trying to help. And they don't realize that the way they help is also a, trip, a test and a trial for them. In fact, I think they're completely oblivious to that. No mm-hmm. God's problem. We've got the answers. And, uh, so, uh, but boy, they are under the test. They, they don't do, they're not doing too good. In fact, the, the greater of the testing is, is Yahweh, and he grades their test at the end of the book, and he says, I'm upset with what you've done. You haven't, you haven't spoken to Job. To Job, but it's true. I think about... Galatians 6, 1, and it says, keep, um, Paul says, if you're going to, if somebody's wandering and getting off path, and you're going to help them, um, he gives two, he gives two counsels. He says, one, do it with gentleness, and two, now be careful, because you can fall, you can, because of that, trying to help, you're, you are uh, vulnerable too, to fall in so, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to help each other. We should, but just to be careful in that, in that way. Any thought about that? How when people around us are suffering and being tested, we are too. Okay, well, let's look at uh, so far as uh, speech. Um, he was—he just wasn't a nice guy, and he was um, pretty rough. Um, on, uh, on Job, so you can see verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Job, your many words are empty babble. Uh, I got a little vocal here. Shut up and listen to me. I don't know if we can it quite that way. Looking at, at verse, uh, verse 3. Should your babble silence men when you, and when you mock, shall 
no one shame you. And uh, so he says, uh, your arrogance is over the top. Don't shame your knowledge of God is pure. And you're cleaning God's eyes. Someone needs to shame you. And he pretty much says, I'm God's man to do that. So he, he tries to get that done. By the way, Job never does claim sinless perfection. That he never does. There's times he actually, in fact, we're going to see it, I think, in his response here, that he knows he's a sinful man. His point is, I just don't see what I've done that's so bad that directly is causing this kind of suffering in my life. That's his, uh, that's his point, I think. Um, and then look at this compassionate thought here. Job, uh, you need to understand that you're really suffering only just a partial, you, know, you deserve a whole lot worse, but uh, you're just suffering just a, a partial judgment. Uh, it's interesting over in uh, 16.1, he calls them miserable comforters, because they don't do very good, good, good job at comforting. Well then, after these, his accusations, Zohar goes to uh, speaking about God's wisdom, and just kind of real quickly, we'll get through this. Job, uh, there's no way you can comprehend the vast dimensions of God's wisdom, like, like I do. Uh, God knows what he's doing. When he detects sin, he, put, he punishes the sinner like he's doing to you. Uh, for you to challenge his wisdom is like the stupidity of a donkey. Uh, see verse 12. I'm not sure if that's exactly what that says, but verse 12 says, But a stupid man will get understanding. Uh, when a donkey's colt is born, uh, a man. So he's, you know, he's uh, sometimes he refers to, to uh, sinful people and stupid people without directly addressing Job. Sometimes he addresses Job uh, directly. Well, um, so finally when we get to, the, to verse 13, Zophar says, Joe, your best option is to repent, to confess your sins to the Lord, admit what you've done, and repent. If you'll do that, things will go well. If you repent the blessings of God, well, let me, let's read verses uh, 13 and 14. This is Job 11, 13 and 14. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. I think it literally means you will stretch out your, your hands up like this. Uh, your hands toward him, open hands, uh, open to what he would, uh, uh, kind of a confession, repentance kind of thing. So verse 13, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. And then he goes on the rest of the chapter and saying it's, it will be wonderful if you'll if you'll repent um, the blessings of God will be amazing you won't have any more fear you will forget your misery light will shine in your life you'll have security and rest and, and others will begin to esteem you again but though if you do not repent of your sins there will be no escape from divine judgment see verse uh, 20 but the eyes of the wicked will, will fail and all way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. So Zophar is very, he's a very clear theologian. He said, I know, how this, I know what the retributive 
justice means, and, and that there's no acceptance to it, and the only way you can get out of this is to repent. So here's a, let's see, this is Christopher Ash. The motivation Jobar gives to Job to repent is precisely the motivation of the Satan's accusation. The Satan thinks that Job has only been pious in order that his piety will win him prosperity. If Job repents in order to regain these blessings, he will prove Satan right. So you, you see the connection. That's what Satan said, wasn't it, in the beginning. He said, the only reason Job loves you, serves you, trusts in you, because you give him stuff. And his three friends are saying, you lost all your stuff. So if you'll just repent, you'll get it back. And, um, and Job knows something's not quite right about that. He doesn't have this figured out yet, but he knows something's not right. And so he's not willing to give in yet. Um, if Job repents in order to regain these blessings, he will prove that, that Satan is right. Here's what happens when partial and distorted truth is applied with arrogant confidence by those who ought to know better or ought to know that they do not know what they think they know. Um, so as far as under a test, he's not doing, he's not doing too good. Don't you like that? It's one thing, let's see how's that go, it's one thing uh, not to know something, but it's even a better thing to, to not know what you don't know. Did I get that right? I don't think I did. <laughs> I mean, you may say, you look at a problem, you say, I don't know how to solve that problem because of this situation here. But there may be things about the problem you don't even know that you don't know. Yeah. Okay? So I think that's kind of carrying this to, a, to another level when we're trying to uh, help people. But arrogance and self-assurance are not good approaches when seeking to help uh, or restore someone. Again, uh, Paul in Galatians 6 says, if you're going to try to restore somebody that's watered down the hand, uh, be very careful and do it with, uh, with gentleness. Okay, so here's Job's response. It's a long one. I think it's his longest response. It's three chapters, 75, uh, 75 verses. Yeah, this is his longest response. And I think what we're seeing here in the commentators that I'm reading says there is progress in Job's, in Job's speeches. He's going somewhere with this. It, if you just, I'm glad to have the help of these men. Um, um, because I can't always see it reading it, but that he is, he's heading us somewhere. So he concludes that the theological system of his friends is not true, and thus he must take his case to God himself. He abandons any hope, really, that his friends are going to be able to understand the situation of his suffering. And therefore, they're not able to offer him any hope to... But what he really wants is to be reconciled to God. He doesn't want to just be rid of his, of his suffering. He wants to know why this is happening and how that keeps him at, at a, a distance from the Lord. So he begins uh, with a pretty, pretty strong uh, rebuke here. And let's see, that's verses... Uh, Chapter 12, verse 1 through part of chapter 13. Um, so 12, 1 through 11 are his first complaints. 
And looking at verse 12, this is chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, but I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I think what he's saying there is, I, I understand this system as well as you do. And he said, frankly, there's not much to it. You can look, I think, I think later, he said, you can look at nature and you can find out what kind of how these, these things work. So it's, not some, it's not some big deal that you're, um, that you are, uh, that, that you're espousing. Oh, look at yeah, verse two. Uh, no doubt you are the people. And I, that the people literally means, oh, you're the upper class gentry. And he's being sarcastic here. And he says, uh, and, and, it looks, and, and all wisdom resides with you. So when you die, we're really in trouble because we're wisdom will die, will die with you. So he's quite uh, sarcastic about it. Um, so uh, I understand the system, and it is a cruel way for people at ease to treat people who are being overcome by the heavy burden of their afflictions. So look at verse 5, and I want you to help me think through what this means. In the thoughts of one, so this is Job 12, 5, in the thoughts of one who is at ease, so in, this, in their thought, in the way they're thinking, those that are at ease, that is, are not going through a trial or, or, a, or a temptation. In their thoughts, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet are slipping. I think that last part means um, if, if, you, if you have contempt on somebody that's already about to lose their footing and fall, you just crush them under a weight that they can't stand. So let's think about this word uh, contempt. So, uh, I mean, these three friends are speaking their contempt, but the root of it is the way they're thinking. And I got to thinking about that, and I, I, I realize I fall into that pattern sometimes myself. And, and uh, so I think what it means is, if I see somebody going through a time of suffering, and I'm holding to this retributive principle, then my, my observation is theologically, you're going through this suffering because you've sinned. I'm not going through the suffering, so I haven't sinned. So I have uh, contempt for you. What, is, what does the word contempt mean? I have the same challenge. It seems like a word we use all the time, but what does it mean to have contempt for, for the suffering that someone's going through? Or say disdain, but yeah, that's uh, that's what that's one of the synonyms. Yeah, yeah other synonyms. That's a good way to ask it. What's what are other synonyms to be contempt, contemptful, contentious? I looked up two or three uh, to despise, to belittle, to regard something as insignificant. Um, so just, I, I just like to think about the implications of the book of Job and how we care for one another. And but one of the things, we're going to see this in a few minutes when we talk about listening, but one of the things that hurts people so much is when you minimize what they're going through. Or, or you say, uh, well, I'm sorry your dog got run over. 
I had two dogs run over one time. You know, you just love them. And him. There is a place to commiserate with people and try to show some identity. I think I know how you feel because I had a dog. But, uh, uh, but contempting means to look down on and to minimize. I was thinking about uh, the servant of the Lord, the, the, uh, servants, the servant songs in Isaiah. And I just love this one, Isaiah 42, 3. The servant of the Lord, of course, that's speaking of the Messiah, Lord Jesus. The servant of the Lord, this is, there's two things he won't do. He will not break a bruised reed. You know, we'll, I think King James says he will not, something like flax or something like that. that this is a little plant that's already kind of been over. The Messiah won't just break it. And, and then he says, and when he sees a, a candle that's just barely flickering, he won't quench it out. So he will not break a bruised reed, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And I think, Lord, what a sweet, you know, knowing our Lord is like that, and we need to be that way too. You know, uh, Prison Fellowship, uh, Chuck Colson's ministry, the symbol is, the, is a little uh, flax, a little, a little reed that's been over, that's the symbol of it. And of course, according to this thing, it's a prison ministry, so he said, we want to be that way with these prisoners. We're not going to stop them out because they're in the difficult time. Well, then Job goes into this, uh, uh, this what, what one of the writers calls it, an interlude of God's wild, dangerous, sovereign rule for 13 or 14 verses. And um, he said, God is the wisest and the mightiest. And he does all kinds of things in the creation that disrupt the order. Um, he confuses, he humiliates, he overthrows, he brings contempt uh, on these mighty leaders in, in, in our nations. And, and what I think what Job is saying here is the same way that God disrupts order in the universe, he's doing that to me. And he's just overpowering, and you can't uh, you can't stand against him. Uh, God plays with the nations, setting them up and setting them down. Let's read. Uh, let's see. This is uh, chapter twelve, verses twenty-two to twenty-five. Well, let's start with verse twenty-three. So this is Job twelve, twenty-three to twenty-five. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless place. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. So Job is just talking about all the things that God does in the universe, and, and he's, uh, he's like Aslan, you know, he's good, but he's not safe. And, uh, and it seems like, I think Christopher Ash says, uh, Job contrasts the overreaching, dangerous wisdom and power of God with the friend's tame system that neatly sorts out uh, the world. Kind of like the Pharisees, they had everything packaged up just perfectly. They didn't have to think about it, they just put you in that, in that box, and that's what he sees his friends doing. And Job still not, he still doesn't know what's wrong. He knows something's wrong with this, but he still hasn't figured it out. Job senses there must be an added perspective which 
And because of that, he keeps going. I think that's the point there. It emboldens his approach to find an answer uh, directly from God. And now he's, then he's back to complaining uh, with them again. Look at verse uh, 4, chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. So whitewash with lies, I think he means you don't understand how to deal with this problem. So you just won't whitewash it with your theology, and it doesn't help me with that. Now, what is a worthless physician? Don't give me a personal example, okay? Just uh, <laughs> why, why, would, why would a physician be called worthless? Yeah, know what he's doing. Okay, what he's doing. They give you a placebo. Okay, give you a placebo, right? Yeah, it may be prompt. You come anticipating some help and you don't, you don't get it in. So that's how Job feels about his friends. There are physicians here to, you know, to, to care for him, but they don't, uh, they don't provide anything. Well, um, let's see, chapter, chapter 13. Um, Job pleads with his friends to listen to him. Chapter 13, verse 6. Oh, no, oh, verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your oh, and it would be your wisdom. That sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? Even a fool, when he remains quiet, seems like he's a wise person. That's good advice for all of us, I thought. Um, let's see, verse 6. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. So you can sense the, the deep disappointment of, apparently these three guys were really good friends of Job. They were buds, you know, the same kind of upper echelon of, of the culture. And he was expecting so much more from them. And he's just saying, please listen to me. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. What, a, what about the, the ministry of the listening ear? Why is listening a ministry to people? What does it do? For, well, you know, why, why is listening, not talking, but listening to someone share their distress or trouble, why is that ministry to them? It affirms that they're being heard. It affirms, okay. Yeah. Somebody cares. Yeah, it, it affirms them because you're listening, they're being heard. Yeah. Okay, let's, them, let's them grieve okay. or lament. Right. If they haven't had somebody that will listen to them do that, they may not have done that before. Have you ever had this happen? Uh, you let somebody talk for an hour or two and they solve their own problem. And you, and you get credit for it. You ever had that? Um, I've had that happen a time or two. I didn't do anything. I just let them talk. But that just shows the process of thinking through things and as we, as we give someone the opportunity to, to talk. So it, it affirms that they're being listened to. It also uh, counteracts this criticism that we've seen here. It doesn't belittle their problem where you just listen. Uh, so what are some, what are some, uh, what's some guidance? What are some tips about listening? Well, listening well is different than just hearing with your ears, isn't it? 
So what are some what are some guidances for really being able to listen to people and minister to them by doing so? Active listening. You repeat back to them what they've said and rephrase okay. it. Uh, just to, to let them know that you are understanding it and taking the time to you know, parse what they're saying. Right. Yeah, so every now and then, you know, I interrupt them for you saying, okay, it just doesn't take much to be sure they know that you're listening. Uh, uh, listening is hard work. If, if you really do it right, it is really, really hard work. Because you have to bracket your own, your own situation, particularly if it's an hour or two of listening. You have to bracket your own thoughts in a sense. Uh, you have to focus on them. You have to bracket your judgment about how you're going to respond. And, um, I remember one time I was a, a chaplain at, a, at a, a big printing company down near Love Feeling, and I was talking to the uh, janitor. Okay, so you'll see where this is going. Um, so he was kind of the lowest man on the totem pole, I guess you'd say, in the employment. But I, I like the guy. Um, so I was talking to him in the hallway. And I was, you know, one of the things you do when you listen, at least in our culture, you look at the person. And in some cultures, you don't look at it because that's threatening. But in this culture, it was good to do that. I was looking at him. And, uh, and he was telling me about, this is like 25 years ago, and I still remember, he was telling me about the problem with his adult son and how distressed it was to him. Well, one of my challenges at this company was to get to see the owner of the company because he's always gone or meeting, and I never get to see him. Well, I, uh, I saw him, the owner of the company, come out of the door of the hallway there. And I really wasn't trying to leave this man, but I wanted to see which doorway the owner went into. So I just cut my gaze away from him just for a moment, looked over his shoulder to see where the owner was going to go. And when, he, when I did, the janitor looked around like that, and he saw the owner of the company. And our conversation was over. He, he didn't say anything, well, he said something else, but he, what he said with his eyes were, oh, I see how this works now. And I won't say, no, that's not how it works, but it really got my attention. Uh, listening is focused attention. And, uh, when we show any way that we're not looking at your watch or whatever else it may be, when we show any way that we're not being attentive, we lose a dimension of the ministry of, of listening. Listening is rare. Just keep that in mind. You can minister to people by taking time to listen to them. And they may say, nobody's ever listened to me before. Any other thoughts about listening challenges you've had? or advice on how to do it well. Uh, Asking uh, questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what would be the reason for asking questions? To clarify. Okay, good. Not to assume that you understand. Yeah. I know sometimes, well, a time or two, you know, my mind, well, not a time or two, your mind can wander over a couple of hours, so I think it's proper to say, you know, I didn't quite follow what you said there. Help me, because boy, you don't want to get this wrong and then give some advice that doesn't fit the situation. So asking clarifying questions is important. Uh, I guess asking questions. 
might also reveal like their theology or way of thinking, how they're approaching it. And, um, I think we all might have the right theology, but in difficult circumstances, we might we might be thinking lies. And hopefully, we're able to see some, some of what that might be by listening. I'd be like Toby, just so under. He's, he's just suffering so much, his theology's kind of going all different directions. So I'd be able to clarify what they're thinking about something. Yeah. Okay, well, let's keep on uh, moving here. Job says, uh, you're speaking falsely about God. When this terrifying evaluation comes, it will not be, it will not be well for you. It's not me who's in danger from God, it's, it's you. So boy, these guys are really, Job and his friends are really against each other. Job resolves to take his case uh, directly uh, to the Lord. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. So this is, uh, what is this, chapter, chapter 13, is that where we are? Okay, my notes are a little different from here. So 13, chapter 13, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Why should I, why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand. Uh, so he's saying, I'm, I, he's saying, I know this, I know this is dangerous to take my, to take my case directly to God. It's really interesting. I mean, he's got a, he's got a corporate scheme set up here. There's all kinds of legal language apparently. So I know I'm taking my life in my hands to do this. And then here's this famous verse, verse 15: Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Don't you hate it when one of your favorite verses, the Hebrew guys say that's not really what it says? <laughs> well, I think you can, the ESV even has a note. Uh, verse 15. Behold, they're saying, or behold, he will not, or behold, he will slay me and I have no hope. So. None of the Hebrew scholars I read really know exactly what, what's being said here, but they don't think uh, though he slay me yet. I think King James says, though he slay me yet, I will trust in him. Or though he slay me, uh, I will hope in him. They all kind of come to the, to the same conclusion as that, but they just want to show their Hebrew prowess and say that's not exactly what it, what it means. Uh, Hartley, one of the guys that I read, he said, he, I thought this was good, he said, Job's faith, because this kind of seems like blind faith. I'm just going to trust him, whatever. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to trust him. Hartley says, Job's faith is not blind, it's bold. <coughs> His trust is rational, though it's daring. He sincerely believes uh, that behind God's great and mysterious power, he will find the God to be that is just. That's his hope. He's turned away from his friends. And he's saying, my hope is in this God. I don't understand all he's doing, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to. And um, this Bash comes back again and again. So that's the, that's the sign of a true believer. He runs toward God, even though he doesn't understand what God is doing. He runs, he runs toward him. So Job enters his uh, plea with God in the divine court. And he prepares his case. This is really interesting. Uh, verse 18, chapter 13, verse 18. Um, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. John, you ought to, 
you resonate with that. You prepare cases to go to court. So, but Toad doesn't have an attorney. That's part of his trouble. I think he's representing himself. He hopes to find one sometime, but he hasn't found one yet. So he, he says, I, will, I would like to have two pretrial conditions. I mean, here he is. You know, I know this is dangerous, but I'm going to get, I got to get this right if I'm going to survive this, uh, this court date with, uh, with the Almighty God. Every now and then, Job says to himself, this is ridiculous. But he's still thinking, thinking through this way. So verse 20 says, grant me two things. Um, then I will not hide myself from your face. One, withdraw your hand from me. And I think he means there, just suspend my suffering for just during the court day. Suspend my suffering because it's so bad I'm not going to be able to function very well. And then he says, um, and let not the dread of you terrify me. And we know that in the scripture that no man can look upon the Lord and those kinds of things. So he's saying that if you come full force, I'm not going to be able to accomplish what I want to in this uh, in this trial. So interestingly, again, we're into this courtroom courtroom scene. So now Job says something interesting in verse uh, 23. And again, here he's very much speaking of his own sins. In fact, he uses, he uses the same three terms for sins uh, that David uses in Psalm 51. Sins, iniquity, and transgressions. So he's, he's not saying that he's sinless. But he says something interesting in verse, uh, let's see, verse 23. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression in my sin. So he's saying, if you just tell me, I'll, you know, I'll deal with it. But he doesn't believe God has told him. Uh, why? Yeah, I think we'll come to the point I want to see here. Um, so verse 24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten the driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. So one, maybe both these commentators said, said that Job is saying, there's nothing current that I've sinned. There's no current sin that deserves what you're doing to me. So are you going back to the sins of my youth and punishing me for that? That seems to be maybe what he's, uh, what he's thinking there. Uh, a tree may be cut down yeah, look at verse 7. This is chapter you know, chapter 14. Oh, I see a typo when I said we were in chapter 18. We're in chapter 14. So verse 7, he said, there's hope for a tree. This is John 14, 7. There's hope for a tree if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots uh, will not cease. So it, its roots can grow deep and you know, it can sprout. Uh, sprout again. But look at verse 10. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? There's no hope for a man. So that's kind of the point that he's um, that he's making here. That there may be hope for you know for some things in creation, but not for man. So he's saying there is no there is no resurrection after the after his uh, after his death. But 
as Christopher Ash says, it's characteristic of Job's speeches that uh, that honest misery and lament sometimes is interrupted from time to time with glimpses of hope and grace. Kind of like the sun shining through a, a cloudy day. Uh, every now and then a little bit of light shines through. And that's what happens in, um, let's see where this is. I think it's in, yeah, verse, uh, verse 13. If, if, if we can see that this is really a sweet, a sweet, uh, a sweet thought that Job has about God. So verse 13, Oh, that you would hide me and seal me, that you would conceal me until your wrath is be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. So he's saying, Okay, I know I'm going to die, I'm going to seal, but just kind of let that be a holding place for a while, because I know your wrath will destroy me. But could there be some way that your wrath would be passed? And when it gets passed, then you could call me back up and we could continue this, you know, this relationship. Um, verse, uh, so now he's really looking for, for the idea of a resurrection. Verse 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Since I'd be glad, I, just put me in Sheol and I'll wait as long as you want me to until your wrath gets by. And then you will, and then he says, uh, Verse 15, and you would call and I would answer you. Um, I thought about Lazarus. Remember, he was in the grave and Jesus called and Lazarus came forth. So it's kind of that kind of thing. Um, he said, I can't deal with your wrath, but if you can get, that, if you can get the wrath thing settled, then you can call me back up and we can, you know, we can go forward with that. I think that's kind of what he's saying. Um, so verse 15, you would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Uh, I think he's saying, because I know you care about me. I'm, I'm your creation. So you would be glad to have me back in a relationship. Um, and then verse 16, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. So that was really sweet. He's, he's like, you put my sins in a bag and go away. And then we, you know, then we could have this back together. Um, so, but he's, he's just kind of dreaming, I think, because notice uh, what happens in verse 18. I, I just said it this way. God, this is wishful thinking. I'll get back to reality knowing that your judgment is relentless and will finally wear away a man's hope completely. You'll send him away. He is only aware of his own pain and mourn for himself. So that's what verses 18 through 22. He comes back to this fear of judgment and says, I know this is really what's going to happen. I don't know what I was thinking about. You know, some kind of resurrection. Uh, but we don't have to think about it, do we? So we know that's the answer. Um, but notice he, he says there in verse... Uh, 17, some way you're going to deal with my sins and throw them away. Because that's the problem. My sins are the problem. You're going to throw them away and I'm going to be fine. He doesn't know exactly how that's going to happen. Uh, but we do. Well, let's finish up here. Look at uh, what these uh, two friends, Hartley and Ash, say. Hartley says, Job's words reveal the sense of futility that haunts him. 
but they also portray the steel, the steel nerve deep inside him that will neither let him succumb to his illness nor seek any easy solution. That will relieve his pain by compromising his integrity. And then Christopher Ash says, Job knows that sin is the reason for our fragile mortality, and sin is the cause of death. And yet, he cannot keep himself from holding on to the hope of a resurrection, the hope that one day, sin will be so decisively dealt with that even death will not be final. That even though he dies, yet he will live and see his maker. And I think we're going to see that play out in the rest of the book. Well, uh, obviously we have much more revelation than Job does, understanding the way of salvation of my grace through faith in Christ. But if you're like me, even we can lose, even we can lose our own bearings and begin to see God in ourselves and others and our situation in, uh, in wrong ways, in ways that aren't, that aren't true. That's why we need the wisdom of God found in the simple gospel message. So I've got a quote here from, um, from Milton Vincent. Now, quoting his, from his book, he gives 31 reasons why we should rehearse the gospel to ourselves every day. You don't have to do all 31, but grab one. This is number two. This is my favorite. I just read it and you will be on my way. The gospel is so foolish according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous according to my conscience, and so incredible according to my timid heart that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to complete to, to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, the lies of the world and the devil, than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. So that's my broken record. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, because it's through the lens of the gospel that we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly, we see others clearly, and we see our circumstances clearly. Thank you.